This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Open it and stick your head out and yell. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Get up. Go to your windows. Open them and stick your head out. Gentlemen, we can't fight in here. This is the war room. Open the pod bay the door. The devil ever told you the world was convincing the Personally, Fight Club is. I award you no point. I talk about Fight Club. And may God have mercy on your soul. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of the Negs Best Film Podcast. I am your host, Matty Negs, and this is Double Digits Time, some place where I think I will be stuck for, well, hopefully not forever. Hopefully we make it one day to triple digits. But for now, here we are at episode 10. And this week is a fun week for sure. I'm going to be reviewing The Huntsman Winter's War with Jack from The Wages of Cinema. And I'm also going to have my buddy James back from Episode 7 previously, where we previewed Season 6 of Game of Thrones. Tonight is Episode 1, our recap of The Red Woman, which just aired this Sunday. Very quickly now, I just want to recap a couple of things on negsbestthing.com. We have some poll results uh, that happened recently. We asked which live-action Disney remake is your favorite, and the choices were 101 Dalmatians, Alice in Wonderland, Cinderella, Maleficent, and Snow White and the Huntsman. And you guys answered with a three-way tie. 101 Dalmatians, Maleficent, and Cinderella all won out on that poll. We had a winner for our latest throwback review. The choices were The Grand Budapest Hotel, Foxcatcher, The Dark Knight Trilogy, and The Toy Story Trilogy. And guess what? The Toy Story Trilogy ended up winning that one out. I will have reviews of all three of those films posted soon on negsbestthing.com. In the meantime, you've got a lot of time to vote on the latest throwback review poll. The choices are 300, Clerks, Blowout, and Gravity. There is certainly a lot of time to vote for those films. Which one do you want to see posted on the site next? Feel free to let me know. We also had reviews recently for High Rise on the site, as well as a little throwback for Take Shelter starring Michael Shannon, which has been pretty fun. I did get a chance to see Elvis and Nixon, which I will be talking about hopefully on the show a bit today. That review will also be posted very soon as well. Please do whatever you can to keep continuing to support negsbestthing.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, and Google Play. And also, please be sure to check out my buddies over at InSessionFilm.com. Their podcast is pretty good as well, where I frequently guest with JD and Brendan, where we too talk about a ton of movies. But today's episode is going to be 
half movie, half television. Without further ado, take it away, Clive Owen. Pay strict attention to what I say because I choose my words carefully and I never repeat myself. All right, everyone. Welcome to episode 10 of the Negs Best Film Podcast. I am your host, Matty Negs, and today I've got Jack over here from the Wages of Cinema Podcast. Jack, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much, Matt, for having me on. Awesome, man. I'm really, really glad to hear that. So we're going to be discussing today the Huntsman Winter's War, and man, oh man, do I've got my boxing gloves ready to take some jabs at this one today. By all means, it should be a lot of fun. But before we uh, get into that, let's first uh, talk about what have you been watching at home this week so far? Catch up on anything good? Uh, Yeah. um, Well, I actually got a chance to, uh, well, you know, because Prince just died uh, suddenly, uh, AMC did this thing where uh, they put Purple Rain into a select number of theaters. So yesterday I went ahead and watched it. Oh, get out of here. Yeah, I'd never, I've never seen it before, so I thought oh, this is as good as a chance as any. And what did you think? Um, I liked it more than I expected. Um, I'd heard things over the years that this movie was pretty cheesy and actually not very good as a movie. Um, and it's actually not bad. Like, there, there are certainly some flaws with the story itself. Uh. But I mean, you you go to this movie mostly not to, really for the story. You go because you want to see Prince in 1984 with the Revolution, you know, performing a lot of those uh, iconic songs. And uh, what I think I liked about it the most was that when you're watching Prince perform uh, on stage, like the songs that he's performing almost conform to the story that's being told. So like he'll perform like a sort of romantic seduction song and it's all for this one character in the audience and then like then a few scenes later when they break up he is all frustrated and singing like a super sex maniac humping an amp <laughs> and uh and then of course at the end when you know he's gone through all the mega melodrama then we get into uh you know the big ballad which of course is uh purple rain yeah yeah, I've never seen it, actually, uh, truth be told. <laughs> yeah, I, I I never really went out of my way to watch it, because, I mean, I, I do like Prince, but, you know, it just, I was never that much a fan enough to see it, but I, I paid my ticket and sat in the front row, which was the only place left, and I got, like, the full metal Prince experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty awesome. I mean, I, um... I did rewatch uh, the Prestige when David Bowie uh, passed away, and oh, I also yeah. um, rewatched. Uh, well, who was it? Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. I saw Eye yeah. in the Sky uh, with him, which was, uh, I yeah, guess, I saw his that last. Too. Yeah, it's his last on-screen performance. And while it wasn't the most amazing performance he's ever given, he was just as serviceable as he always has been. And, you know, bringing it back to Prince uh, for a second here, I mean, huge loss uh, to the music world and definitely um, a really, really good chance to revisit this film for sure. Yeah. I I definitely should get on that and, you know, devote time to it. And you know what? I think that, uh, you know, you and I talking about it right now, I think it's probably uh, the perfect uh, convincing that I needed to make that happen. So I'm probably going to check that out now. Yeah, no, I again, it's not it's not a great movie by mm-hmm. by any stretch. Some of it is 
you know, it's a lot more of a serious movie than I expected in some ways. It's like the movie, um, it's very, it's kind of heavy in parts because it's like charting a semi autobiography of Prince as he, uh, deals with his parents who, uh, his father abused his mother and, and then like he, you know, had a rocky relationship with uh, a girl who in the movie it's Apollonia. Um, but I mean, there's some fun stuff to it. I mean, this is where you also get, uh, the whole thing with Morris Day and the time. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard any of their music, but, um, of all things, I actually knew of them because in the movie, Jay and Silent Bob strike back. Uh, I think at one point, uh, Jay, uh, Jason Muse does like a rendition of one of their songs, which oh. is in the, which is in purple rain. So I think Kevin Smith was a huge Prince fan. That's really awesome. That's really cool, actually. It's a <laughs> nice little good tidbit of trivia there, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anything else, or? Um. Oh man, I've been just. Well, I've, I watched. Yeah, I watched a lot of movies. Um. I mean, you guys already talked about the Jungle Book, so uh, I don't know if you want to talk that much more about that. No, by all means, tell me what you thought. Um. I. The thing is, I I really love the '67 movie. Um, I think that was, that's just a fantastic achievement. Uh, and, and, but more so as just a comedy. Like I actually really love, uh, that movie as just a fun Disney animated movie. It's not too heavy. This one, like the new one might actually have a slightly better constructed story. Mm-hmm. Like I might actually like Mowgli a little bit more, but it wasn't as fun for me, if that makes sense. Like really? it didn't really, it, I didn't really get that much humor with the exception of, you know, Christopher Walken as Louie, which was just so weird. Yeah. Like, I was just sitting there in the theater like, what am I watching? I'm watching, like, this rendition of I Want to Be Like You, and you're going to have kids who, you know, are seeing, seeing this movie, and if they haven't seen the cartoon movie, they're going to be like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> this isn't a musical, <laughs> aside from this and Bare Necessities, so. Yeah, no, it's a very good point, actually, because... It is the only two moments in the film uh, that and when uh, Baloo starts singing Bare Necessities, like you were saying, it's those two moments that the film loses me because it's setting itself up to be this uh, serious, not too serious, though, um, drama about the dangers that this boy encounters in the jungle and trying to evade getting killed by Shere Khan. Yeah. And the film just goes off on this... Uh, I guess lighter than light musical approach that I get it. They're trying to pres- uh, preserve the uh, timelessness of those songs by incorporating it in a new film that they're hoping a new generation of kids will see. Yeah. And I completely understand that. And I can't fault them for it either. It just, it's the one moment of the film where I was taken out of the film, personally speaking. So I, I, I let me put it to you this way. They're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't in this case. Yeah. So leave leave it in, you know. And and, and if that's my one complaint, then I'm okay with that. It's it's a it's a movie that has to deal with what I would almost call like origin weight, mm. where you know you have that '67 movie, which is so iconic for people, mm-hmm. but then you have like this new movie, which you know it's a, you know even though all the animals are technically cgi and you know animated you know it's still set in a realistic jungle environment so you can't really get the same type of story that you got before and yet you know you got scenes where 
I don't know if I was a kid seeing this new jungle book. I mean, maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe I was a bit of a wuss as a kid. I'd be terrified by a, a couple of sequences. <laughs> oh no, there definitely are for sure. I mean, Shere Khan in this film alone is probably one of the best villains I've seen in any movie alone this year. I, and you know, I, I talked about this extensively on my last uh, podcast, Yeah, but I definitely agree with you that it does push the limits a little bit. And you know, the biggest takeaway from the film is how incredible the cgi is of not just the animals but the jungle environment itself i mean the whole film was shot on a soundstage with no real jungle wow i actually did not know that i would have thought maybe they would have shot in some real jungle but uh, yeah that is very no that that's incredibly impressive uh you know so i was I, i enjoyed the movie i just uh you know i i just it would be nice to see you know, like not not all the time getting you know from you know, not just Disney but a lot of different places, and maybe we'll even get into this with uh, um, with with the Huntsman. But this whole like kind of serving the IP, sort of serving like you know what sort of property you're dealing with and what ha- you know what fa- some fans will expect, and then you know, I mean, you know, it's a gritty reboot of. Basically, a, a, a fun kids' cartoon with you know dancing, singing animals. So <laughs> you have to kind of make it you know more serious, and yet you know at a certain point, you know if you have Bill Murray singing the Bare Necessities, it's uh, <laughs> you know it's not going to be completely serious. But but no, I, I enjoyed it though. I, it was I enjoyed it more than I certainly expected. Like with the, with this with this case too. Um. So what were some things you saw? Well, um, I actually had a chance to see the new film uh, Elvis and Nixon. I saw that too. Yeah, so little uh, mini review here, I guess. Um, yeah, I didn't love it. I ah man, you know what it is? It's like I enjoyed seeing Michael Shannon and Kevin Spacey act with one another. Yeah, and that was a lot of fun. But the whole two thirds you know, a uh, beginning of the film, it, it's like Kevin Spacey's barely in it. And I mean, barely in the first two thirds yeah, of the film. It's more of an Elvis movie than an Elvis Nixon movie. Right. And so I was like, why is this movie called Elvis and Nixon? And I, I usually like it when biopics focus on a small aspect of somebody's life, as opposed to doing a whole entire greatest hits uh, compilation. Mm-hmm. So, I thought that maybe we would get a really good idea of who Elvis was. And while Michael Shannon does his absolute best here to capture the essence of who Elvis was, and he does succeed in parts, the fact that he looks absolutely nothing like (laughs) Elvis or sound anything like Elvis completely took me out of the film once again. And I did not buy it, not one bit whatsoever. Yeah. And I also found it uh, admirable, though, that they tried to give weight to the supporting roles in the film, especially mm. the Jerry Schilling character, which, from what I understand, though, they did that because he was kind of like the consultant on the film. Ah. So, mm. I don't know, maybe that had something to do with it here. Okay. Uh, but I did appreciate that they tried to give him some sort of a storyline, at least. Yeah, I, I, it's a, it's a, it's a slight movie. I don't know if that's a good way to describe it. Like there's, you know, it's a very, it's kind of a short movie. I think it's less than 90 minutes. It might only be like 85 minutes or something. Oh yeah. It's like 88 Um, minutes or something like that. Yeah. Uh, now I think what was, what was strong about the movie for me was that it, 
it kind of reflected a little bit of the fact that Elvis and Nixon weren't were kind of similar in some ways, even as their differences were also very stark, you know, cause they were both figures of the public who, uh, you know, depending, you know, El- even though Elvis was loved by a lot more people than Nixon was loved by people, obviously like they both have this whole, you know, they, they present this public image that they kind of craft and then behind closed doors, you know, it's more of like, a I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this podcast, but it was like a dick measuring contest. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I enjoyed that. Like I enjoyed the whole, like, yeah, Michael Shan obviously doesn't look like Nixon and then not, not Nixon, Elvis. And I could say that Kevin Spacey on if he really looks like Nixon either. Um, but I mm, feel like he sounded more like Nixon than he looked like. Well, Nixon. well, Spacey, I think is much better at imitations than, you know, Michael Shannon basically, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a scary Elvis before. Because uh, <laughs> Shannon sometimes brings that element to a movie uh, where sometimes you don't know if you're going to get somebody who, you know, is kind of terrifying, but maybe might be good hearted or this or that. Like the scene, like my favorite scene in Elvis and Nixon is where it's right before he's about to go meet Nixon and he's sort of talking to himself, trying to prepare like what he's going to say. And yeah. he gets into this whole thing about t- talking like if he's going to talk about his uh, twin brother who died. And that, that's actually a true story. And of all things, I think that actually inspired this really terrible movie uh, called The Identical, which I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but that no. is quite a notorious movie. Um, but but I thought that was a great scene. Like, there are a number of great scenes in this movie, even though it doesn't all amount to very much, if that makes sense. Uh, and that's one of them. That's where you get to see Mike Michael Shannon, you know, bring his acting chops. Um, and I agree with you, that mirror uh, practicing scene, that's probably my favorite part of the film, too, because it explores... Um, a theme in the film that I really, really loved. And that was the notion of celebrity and how even somebody like Elvis, who's one of the most popular people on the planet during this time, he he gets starstruck by the president. Uh, Yeah. Just as how the people that are working in the white house get starstruck by Elvis. And then likewise, you know, Nixon, who's very dismissive. He's like, Oh, rock and roll. Or I'll give you five minutes. He gets wowed by Elvis. Exactly. And I love that notion that, you know, behind all this celebrity persona, deep down, these are people. Yeah. And you said so yourself that they create these personas that people gravitate towards and they identify uh, these characters. I'm sorry, these people with, um, I guess, characters in that sense, too, in in the context of this film. Yeah. But it's really interesting how... Both actors, Spacey and Shannon, when they are together and they are uh, acting with one another, they try to get a little bit deeper with the characters. Now, I don't think the film fully succeeds in exploring that as much as it could have. And I do think that the film itself is kind of amateurly, you know, made. And there's a couple of other things I just don't think, you know, fully work in the film. But at the end of the day... Uh, it was enjoyable and it was fun. I, I I laughed a couple of times at some of the humor in this film, even though it didn't land a hundred percent of the time. Because for me, I actually I, I think I liked the movie more than you did. Only Probably because 
like I found it funny from consistently. Like I was cracking up through a lot of this movie, just in large part because you know it, maybe it's a one note joke, but the way that people are reacting to suddenly, oh my god, here's Elvis, and then even you have a scene in the airport where the Elvis impersonators <laughs> come up. That was and great. They're like, "What kind of Elvis costume are you wearing?" And Elv- and the real Elvis is like, uh, "What?" <laughs> but I think it's funny though because in my mind, as I'm watching that scene where the impersonators approach him i found it funny because they look and sound more like elvis than shannon does <laughs> and that's what i think that they were poking fun at a little bit was that the film was kind of self-aware in that yes we know that shannon does not look and sound like elvis and yes we will highlight that fact in the film here for you but they wanted somebody of the caliber that shannon is to portray this role and i think he's fine like I was saying before, I don't think he's amazing. I think he's done better work before. I don't think that he was the best person uh, for this. No, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think that for me, watching a movie like this, I, I, in a weird way, I feel like I get more about Elvis than I even would watching a full like, traditional biopic where you get the usual ups and downs. Here you're getting just this little slice of, okay, here's what happened when Elvis met Nixon. Okay, it's not a lot, but it's uh, but it's certain, but it's something different. Like it's a little bit closer to, uh, and obviously this was a much much better film. But last year, uh, I don't know if you saw uh, the end of the tour. Oh yeah, uh, that movie with Jason Segel. That you know, because there you get a movie, uh, you know, where this guy has to interview David Foster Wallace over a few days, and you get so much out of this guy, even though it's in this really small time frame. Uh, and I, I really like that approach uh, when dealing with a kind of true life story type of scenario. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that. And I'll uh, also just echo saying that I don't know if Kevin Spacey was the best person to play here as well, because even though he does a good Nixon voice, it's so hard to see him in the Oval Office and not think of Frank Underwood. <laughs> it's so hard. I, I could sort I could see a little bit of a difference, but I, I definitely see what you're saying because yeah, when Spacey's sitting in the president's seat, it's yeah, it's very easy to see him in that role. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's not he's not the worst Elvis. He's not the best Elvis. Not Elvis. Sorry, I keep saying Elvis Nixon because I've seen a lot of Nixons on screen. I mean. You know, did Anthony Hopkins look like Nixon or, uh, or I don't know, like Dan Hedaya in the movie uh, Dick, which, uh, you know, that that one's even more farcical than this one. Yeah, yeah. I, I And I agree with you. I'm not I'm not going to disagree there with this. I will say, though, that uh, I will have a review of this up soon on NegsBestThing.com. Great. Um, I just got to figure out what my final grade of it is going to be. I don't have one at this time. Yeah. But it's... It's an enjoyable film that, you know, if you, if you like the two actors, just realize that you're only going to see them on screen in the last third of the film, not even last half, but just the last third. And the first two thirds of the film is mostly Michael Shannon and Kevin Spacey's barely there. And like we were saying before, other than the uh, theme of celebrity and the personas that these men put up uh, for the world to see, 
There's no other real themes in this film, so I also think that the replay value is going to be uh, pretty low on this one as well. Yeah, no, I, I even told my wife that when we were leaving the movie that, you know, I really I enjoyed this, but I don't have a desire to watch it again. Exactly. So, with all that out of the way here, now we are going to dive into The Huntsman Winter's War. If it's the Snow White tale you're looking for, Discover the story that came before. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? You are my queen, but not for long. Your sister holds a baby who will grow to be more beautiful than you. But beware. Should any harm come to the child, your sister will unleash a power unlike anything the world has ever known. To escape the pain of her loss, the good queen built a fortress of ice around her heart. If she could not raise a child, she would raise an army. You will train. You will become my huntsman. Nice shot. I thought I made you strong. But you're as pathetic as you ever were, little sister. This is my kingdom. Did you say something? With the mirror's magic, I'll rule the world. That mirror's an evil and dangerous thing. We have to destroy it. All right, so The Huntsman Winter's War, directed by Cedric Nicholas Troyan, the former visual effects supervisor on Snow White and the Huntsman, and written by Evan Spilolotopoulos. Oh my God, I am not good with Greek class names. And Craig Mazin, starring Chris Hemsworth, Charlize Theron, Emily Blunt, Nick Frost, Sam Claffin, Rob Bryden, Jessica Chastain. Yeah. So, oh man, this is the sequel to Snow White and the Huntsman that we didn't ask for, nor did we need. I don't know who was asking for this, aside from some, like, coked up uh, studio exec. I mean, yeah, I I agree with you, because here we are four years later with this sequel, prequel, not really sure, and... It's, me, it's, it just... it's, it's mostly a sequel. It, it has, like, it, it, it kind of starts off with a little bit of a prequel, but it's not really, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it's really a sequel that happens to tell a story that takes place before the events of the first movie, but it's really about what comes after. And so let's summarize that uh, taking place before the events of snow white and the huntsman Freya played by Emily Blunt is betrayed by her evil and jealous sister, Ravenna, Charlie Steron in her despair. Freya unleashes her ice powers and retreats towards the Northern part of the kingdom to build an army of emotionless huntsmen. The warriors are forever forbidden to love despite the bond that develops between Eric, Chris Hemsworth and Sarah, Jessica Chastain. 
Now, years later and past the events of Snow White and the Huntsman, Eric and Sarah set off to destroy the evil mirror used by Ravenna and hope to evade the clutches of the vengeful Freya so that one day they can live in a kingdom where they can continue to love another uh, without the risk of danger. Uh, I feel I feel I feel like I just, you know, w- w- went up climbing up a mountain listening to that. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, uh, let me tell you, they're definitely, as far as building a sequel to uh, this film, Snow White and the Huntsman goes, they're reaching. They're reaching pretty far. You know, the thing about this movie that I I thought of, and I'm not sure if you took it, like, it's, it seems kind of blatant that, you know, part of it, again, must, obviously, even more than other movies, doesn't really have as much of a reason to exist, but did they really, they, they took so much from Frozen, Oh yeah, that was that was blatant. It's like there was some exec somewhere who was telling the screenwriters, "Hey, you know that thing that little girls like? You know, just graft some of that onto this. You know, that had an ice queen. Let's put an ice queen in this one." And you know, it, it just seems so blatant. Like I'm, I can imagine just even little girls who go to see this movie will be like, "Really?" <laughs> well, let's bear in mind, I don't think this film is for children. I, I and I yeah. don't think it's for adults either. I think it's for teenage girls. I guess you're right. Yeah, I mean, I actually saw like some uh, like a family with like little kids sitting in front of me at the theater, and a lot of them seemed a little bored. They were just kind of fidgeting in their seats. Maybe uh, Jungle Book was sold out or something. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, and I don't think necessarily a fantasy movie that's directed a little bit more at girls than at boys is necessarily a bad thing. But you could still have a little bit better writing. You could try to make the story a little bit more than just a series of plot points. Well, isn't that the most amazing thing about this film is that it's just so incredibly boring that even little kids are fidgeting? Because, man, let me tell you, for as much plot as they cram into this thing, I was bored to tears by this movie. It's pretty cliche. And it's mostly, mostly the main plot of it. I mean, now, if I was able, if I had to try to find some nice things to say about the movie, I could. But generally speaking, I think the main word that I would come away from this, and to an extent I felt about this with the first movie as well, is forgettable. Hmm. It's just not very memorable. Like, I, I wrote a review really quickly on Letterboxd yesterday, and in part, I even said my review, I'm writing this, so, you know, a week from now, I'm probably going to forget most of what I watched. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah, I mean, there, there are certain things that I will uh, not forget in this film. I will not forget Jessica Chastain's horrible accent in this film. <laughs> I will not forget uh, Emily Blunt's uh, attempt to uh, impersonate Eddie Redmayne and Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> uh, well, come on. Not, no, I, you can't. Nobody can quite get to the heights that Redmayne got to that. In oh, that movie. no. That is just legend, That is legendarily campy. No. Well, let, well let, me, let, me, let me touch upon that for a second. Because that's a good point. Uh, talking about campy performances, Charlize Theron in um, Snow White and the Huntsman was incredibly campy. And she yeah. seemed to be the only person in that film that knew what kind of a film she was in. And she was probably the best part of that film. And to an extent, that's the same thing here when she pops up as well. Yeah, but I don't think that... I think the magic is worn off now this time. Hmm. I did not find her as delightful as I did uh, the first go-around. And maybe that's simply because I wasn't expecting it the first time 
This time around, it just seemed like, okay, I've seen this before. And quite frankly, she didn't even look like she even cared. She looked like she just wanted the paycheck like everybody else. Well, well, something to talk about, though, is the fact, you know, when you say that, you know, they didn't even want to be there, which, you know, and by the way, Jessica Chastain is only here because uh, she had a con- contractual obligation yeah. to uh, Crimson Peak. Yeah. Um, you know, Kristen Stewart, you know, she was one of the things why people rushed out to see uh, that first movie. Uh, you know, and for some reason, that movie became a big hit, um, you know, and it was still when Twilight was you know, not quite dead yet. Uh, so I guess that attracted some teenage girls, but in this movie, there are times, not throughout, but there are certainly times where it feels like the filmmakers really should have had snow white in the story. They allude to it. (laughs) Oh, more than not only that, they have a scene where you see, uh, you know, snow white is, uh, you know, in turmoil because, uh, you know, the mirror is gone and you see, you know, quote snow white you know curled up in a ball crying and you, it's so not Kristen. no Stewart. it's a stand in it's double yeah. and it's just distractingly awful yeah like you know either you know try to get Kristen stewart and have her in the movie or don't have snow white in 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 a role like this at all like you know i know that she's not a big part of this plot but even still it feels like they really wanted to have her in there and they just couldn't. So they tried to write around it and it, it's just really painful. But it just goes to show you that this was just a totally unnecessary sequel where if they weren't even going to write around it, it's like I just I'm, I'm baffled that this film has to exist. And it just seemed to me like all of the great people that could have elevated this film, mainly uh, Chastain, uh, Charlize and Emily Blunt, they are completely wasted in this. I just, mean, I, I would say that they to, to try to give the, to give them their slight due as best as I can. They did try to come to go to work. Like, I don't know if they're exactly sleepwalking through these roles. I don't know if that would be the, the term I'd put through it. But oh, the problem, I definitely but, but, think so. Well, no, no, but the script is just so tedious and hackneyed. And, you know, that, that that's the thing that, you know, the, these actors are good when they have really good material and good directors. And, I mean, again, this guy who directed this movie. First time director. uh, Yeah, obviously. And I think, wasn't the guy who did the first Snow White also a first time director too? I don't remember. Rupert something. uh, But yeah, I mean, and it's a a common thing. I think it was also the case with uh, uh, Maleficent where you had, uh, you know, uh, somebody who's primarily in special effects or production design elevated into being a director and... They probably focus a lot on the on what they're probably good at in terms of dressing up the movie, uh, you know, special effects and all that. But when it comes to making a good story to give a damn about, then you just you just don't. Well, yeah. Speaking of that, now let's talk about uh, production on this film and let's focus on some of that. Um, I did not find, man, I'm just going to sound like so mean, but I just didn't find anything redeemable in this film as far as the music, the special effects, the, um, I, you know what, costumes, I'll, I'll give it costumes. 
Yeah. Uh, costumes are, are pretty good in this. But even art direction in this film, just compared to the first one, I think if you watch the first film and then watch this one side by side, I think we can all agree that the first film has got a better visual aesthetic than this one does. Yeah, the the first movie, I think, got nominated for a couple of Oscars, too, for the costume design and VFX. I mean, there, there are times where the visual effects are fine. Where I really noticed that they were not fine was this one section... Uh, when the the characters are in the woods and they finally come to where uh, the the mirror is being stashed and and God I don't even know what you would describe them as but there are suddenly these CGI creatures who I guess are giant ape men or ape monsters and they looked like crap they just looked really bad uh, you know and especially for a movie that's over a hundred million dollars and has some money behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, why, why don't you just make a sci-fi channel movie while you're at it? <laughs> I mean, listen, nothing's going to look as bad as the um, visual effects that were used on Doomsday and Batman versus Superman. That's for sure. <laughs> but I mean, this came pretty close in that moment. I definitely agree with yeah, you there. It, there was no there was nothing that quite looked like a bad uh, Ninja Turtle uh, excrement. But uh, no, just in that in that scene, I mean, uh yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. A lot of it is yeah, as you said, a lot of the art direction is pretty bland. Uh, you know that ice. You know that I know that yeah. You have to have an ice palace for your ice queen, but that also was very stock. Like when you see the uh, the image of the ice palace that the queen lives in. Yeah. It was just also aside from Frozen, I also felt like they were cribbing a little bit from Game of Thrones. Oh God! Um, but you know, and I obviously, yeah, and I know you. I guess you obviously like Game of Thrones a lot, as I do. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, and it's it, at times it seemed obvious, even though it was still, you know, being, I guess, what you could call its universe. It's made for itself, but but I don't know. I, you know, it's. Uh, yeah as as we've talked about it's just no reason for this movie to exist except to continue you know the studio having this property which you know yeah nobody's asking for this and i think it's going to be forgotten not only by us but by the public in you know a couple weeks i will say this the one bright spot of the film i felt was actually uh nick frost yes who absolutely you know giving it everything he was giving it everything he could as far as his comedy goes to try and elevate the film on that level because yeah but yeah but both actors uh, nick frost and the other guy rob bright oh yes who, yes uh, he, he's in the 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 trip movies mm-hmm. uh with steve coogan uh he they were both quite good uh you know they helped to bring a little bit of levity you know i mean even that was a little conventional but at least there i could kind of lose myself in the fact that oh hey here are these two guys who yeah, they're 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 made to look like dwarves, and uh, you know they're the very basic comic relief. But they are having fun with their parts, and they're trying to liven up what's a pretty, you know, joyless movie. Um, I mean, I, I felt a little bit of the loss of Bob Hoskins, ah, you yeah, because he was in the first one, and that was his last movie. Yeah. Um. So obviously that was kind of sad. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to find more things to say about it. Well, but it's let's just... get to something that I definitely want to talk about here because I think we've been building up to it, and this is the perfect point, I think, to uh, bring it up, which is the lack of chemistry between Chastain and Hemsworth in this film. Mm. 
I mean, just Hemsworth. I, I don't know what it is, but he just looked uncomfortable in this movie. I don't know if it was the accent. I don't know if it was the co- bits of comedy that he attempted in this. I don't know if it's just, hey, get me back to playing Thor. That's what I'm really good at. I'm only doing this for the money. I, I mean, like, he just seems so boring and uninterested in being in this film to me it seemed like yeah and the less said about uh chastain's attempt at that accent the better yeah i mean again i would say even with that accent aside i felt like she was trying a little bit more to be engaging with the material like but she you know but they were both sat with the script but that's aside the point that yeah they not the strongest chemistry even though they're supposed to have you know, scenes where they're, you know, they're, they're supposed to be the, the love story. They're supposed to be the grand story of love conquers all, which, uh, Oh God, can we get into that as the theme of the movie that, that whole love conquers all BS. Uh, that, uh, and then yawn. by the way, and also yawn. God, talk about cliche things. Liam Neeson. <laughs> As the narrator? Oh, man. I, uh, I, I was hoping that we wouldn't uh, have to bring that up because <laughs> I, I just don't even want to breathe life into the fact that he's associated with this movie. Um, especially when I think that... <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I think about it, I have a feeling that he's going to win the Oscar this year for uh, Silence. So 2016 will be, be looked nice. back on as like a landmark year for him. And he's going to have his name tied to this just like, oh, no, Liam, no. <laughs> yeah, there was some guy, there was someone who did a review of, the, of this movie who uh, who kind of had the thought, well, what if what if it, it would have taken instead of it being, uh, you know, you had a girl who's been kidnapped and in order to get her back, you have to do the narration for the huntsman. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, you talk about Jessica Chastain and her contractual obligations. I wonder what Neeson had to do here. <laughs> God, yeah, just the words spoken. It, it, you know, this would have been cliched and stock in like the 50s. Mm-hmm. You know, if this was like a Ray Harryhausen uh, stop motion movie, which that actually would have been much, at least that would have had a little bit more authenticity to it. This, uh, um, yeah, just that whole theme of the love angle was just a little was just so weak, and uh, well, because it's something that once again, you know, we're not their target demographic at the end of the day yeah, here. Yeah, but even still, like for teenage girls, I think they might be bored by this movie too, mm-hmm. because yeah, all right, yeah, they might go and think, "Ooh, Thor's dreamy." Um, that's exactly what they're hoping that girls their age are going to say. Yeah, they're thinking Thor's dreamy and girls will find Jessica Chastain cool. But there needs to be a little bit more than that. Like, the more, the more I'm talking about this movie, the more I'm disliking it now that I'm thinking about it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Good. Good. I mean, I, I find it funny that even the child actors that played um, – Eric and uh, Sarah in this film, I found their chemistry to be better than Hemsworth and Chastain's. And I actually bought into their relationship more so uh, during that point than I did any other point during the film. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, I definitely, I don't expect there to be a third one of these. I think that they might And they leave it open for the possibility. That's what baffles my mind. Well, 
barely. I think maybe just barely they do. Like least I think Liam Neeson's narration at the end is like, and they all lived happily ever after. Or did they? <laughs> like, oh, are you kidding me? It was something to that effect. Like It was it was definitely like that for sure. I I mean uh, at least I, I don't want to reveal any spoilers or anything like that here. And I, I don't think this film is worth talking about within that context. Um, so I'm just going to just leave it at this and say we are probably going to get a third film because as of this moment right now, the film's already made back its budget. Really? Already? Yeah. Worldwide gross uh, brought it in to over a hundred million dollars and i believe the budget was like 115 so oh well, well i don't know we'll see what the drop-off is you always have to remember that you have to take the bu- the budget and times it t- uh, by two because of all the yeah. marketing and all that Alrighty. so with that said let's get into uh final thoughts and grades here jack what would be your final thoughts on the film and what grade would you give the huntsman winter's war um, well, uh, in terms of grades, like what, what type of scale are we looking at? Like letter grades? Um, whatever you prefer in this case, I like to do five stars with, uh, oh, you know, okay. halves. That works. Um, I, I, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I actually, I think I admired some of the background aesthetic stuff, maybe slightly more than you did. I was, uh, you know, I did, I, I thought that the. Some, a lot of the production design was fine. I thought some of the you know costume design and the visual effects, with the exception of a few really bad creatures and a few and a few bad moments, were were pretty good. It was you know it's just the matter of maybe the worst feeling that you have to a movie is indifference, and I think that a lot of this movie is just feeling indifferent to uh, the struggles of these characters and the fact that yeah you don't really care what will happen to them because you know, you, in this type of storyline, everybody comes out fine. Uh, you know, there are no surprises. Um, the one thing that you think is kind of a surprise is, uh, between the two characters, uh, is explained away very quickly. Uh, there's a little bit of humor that works. So, you know, I'll, I'll give it that. Uh, I would give it, uh, two out of five stars or two out of five blazing blue, uh, fire arrows out of five. (laughs) <laughs> oh man so it's funny because i was reflecting on it uh the other day and just trying to say to myself like it, it it's not a coincidence that the lord of the rings movie trilogy is my favorite film of all time mm. and that game of thrones is my favorite uh television show currently on right now breaking bad still my favorite of all time but we'll see where game of thrones ends and it's because when fantasy and you know just the idea of like medieval warfare, whether it be based in history or not, that stuff for me, uh, that's my stuff. That that's that's for lack of a better term, that's my shit right there. Yeah, I love that. So it's amazing to me that not many of these projects get greenlit. But then when a film like this comes out, I realize why. It's because you end up getting something like this as far as a stinker goes or something misguided and ends up becoming uh, something that's really just not going to hold up well, like the Hobbit trilogy. And it really all just stems from you need to have grade A expert storytellers be able to tell a story either with a tremendous scope 
like the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy did, where they had three films to do it, or a television series like HBO. If you try to tell a fantasy uh, sort of story in a small two-hour window, you're going to probably get misguided and, in this movie's case, horrendous results. So... I, I I see it as honestly one of the toughest, if not the toughest genre to crack and to actually get right on film. And so this is one another example of a film that just has not and <laughs> been able to do it here. And hey, listen, they wanted to get more money. They wanted to capitalize on uh, the success of Snow White and the Huntsman and, you know, why that film was a success. Obviously, Kristen Stewart. Is she in this one? No. So what are they going to do? They're going to bring back, however implausibly, they're going to bring back Charlize Theron into the movie. They're shoehorn in a plot that, you know... It, it, it doesn't make much sense to begin with. Yeah, it, it doesn't make much sense within this world and it doesn't really add anything to the enjoyment of the first one. It doesn't really further the story that doesn't really further these characters in ways that makes you grow with them, which is what happened with Lord of the Rings movies. Um, they didn't really take the material, you know, on a more adult level, maybe that would have worked better or, you know, maybe if this stuff was a book, maybe certain literary fantasy fans might've tolerated it a little bit. More. Maybe, maybe. So what's your final rating? Oh, man. So I never give anything zero stars. Uh, so this gets my lowest rating of half a star. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I know. I'm, I'm pretty unmerciful, I have to say. But it's mostly because you're taking a genre that I truly do love when it's done correctly. And you're basically doing everything that is incorrect about it. And for selfish reasons. Screw you. You get my lowest rating. Okay. That's how I view it. So, uh, we're going to have actually a shortened episode uh, today as far as uh, film talk goes. So, yes, unfortunately, listeners, no cinema throwdown, no spoiler review, no extra discussion segment. That is because I am going to be reviewing the first episode of Season 6 of Game of Thrones with my pal James. So, unfortunately, Jack, our time here is cut. But before you uh, skedaddle out of here, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on the web? Well, uh, you can listen to new episodes of the Wages of Cinema podcast uh, where uh, my co-host Andrew and I cover you know, a whole range of uh, topics of new movies, cult movies, you know, old movies, anything you could think of. Uh, we have special segments. We have uh, this or that. And, we, and also I do uh, interviews with local filmmakers and actors on a special segment called Local Vocal. Uh, so you kind of get two podcasts in one and it alternates week to week. Uh, you can listen to new episodes uh, on SoundCloud, uh, soundcloud.com slash wages of cinema. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes. Uh, if you go on iTunes uh, and you like what you hear, maybe give us a rating or review. It always helps uh, our presence. And also you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, just do a search for the Wages of Cinema podcast and uh, you'll find us there. Awesome, man. Really, really glad to have you on. I hope to have you on again in the future in a more uh, longer episode. And we will get to those certainly in the future for sure. So if yeah. Thank you for and maybe a better movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Please, please to the gods of cinema, please grant yes. us a better film. I can't take it anymore. I need Oscar season to get here, pronto. Mm-hmm. So, with that said, thank you very much for being on the show. And now let's embark over to Westeros for some Game of Thrones talk. 
cannot give you back your homes or restore your dead to life, but perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our king. This is the Game of Thrones review for season six. We are here with episode one titled The Red Woman. I am Maddie Nags and I am joined today by my good pal James. James, welcome back. Hey, what's up guys? Thanks for having me again. All right, so you are back with us on episode seven. Here we are, episode 10. Double digits, my friend, double digits. Getting up there, Matt. I made it this far. <laughs> So this is going to be a lot of fun because for 10 weeks we are going to be recapping each episode of the new season of Game of Thrones, starting off with this one here. This episode is actually directed by Jeremy Padeswa, who directed uh, Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken Ooh, last season. That was a really good episode. He was nominated for an Emmy, actually, for that, believe it or not. And it was considered the worst episode in Game of Thrones history. Yeah? Yeah. So go figure. I mean, you got the terrible Dornish... Uh, fight scene with the Sand Snakes, Jamie and Braun. You had the sa uh, Sands getting raped by Ramsey scene. And I mean, just, uh, uh, I mean, honestly, as far as backlash goes, probably the most hated episode, I think, by most fans and critics alike. I think he did the best with what he had because if you consider the, the body of work he's working with, as far as like the whole Sansa in terms of the book and what he's drawing from, they did it very tasteful compared to how the book described it. Mm -hmm. And as far as the Sand Stinks fight scene, I think, I don't know if that's as much his fault as just the location had so many constraints that that was the best they could do. Yeah, yeah, I, and I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you on that. I have uh, given <coughs> doubt in this case, or no, given the benefit of the doubt, rather, uh, to the show in many of the decisions that they make here. And here we are heading into season six. There were a couple of trip-ups along the way in season five, perhaps, uh, with how they rushed Stannis' plot towards the end, their execution of Dorne, mostly. Do you think they'll be able to redeem themselves in season six? Well, we're gonna find out. I thought he was the man to lead us through the long night, but I was wrong. Do you like games, little man? He would spill blood in this holy place. The gods were mine. They spill more blood than the rest of us combined. Who are you? No one. The girl has been given a second chance. There will not be a third. It's all I think about. What was taken from me. I know what happens. There's no hiding from this. We have to fight. Stand at the head of our army where you belong. Show them what Lannisters are. What we do to our enemies. The real war is between the living and the dead. And make no mistake, the dead are coming. 
dragons do not do well in captivity. How do you know this? That's what I do. I drink, and I know things. All right, so if you want a recap of what happened in Season 5, by all means, listen to our previous episode from Episode 7, where James and I did our best to recap where everybody left off and give our predictions on where we felt that Season 6 was heading at the time. So, we open up Season 6. Awesome shot, by the way, gliding along the side of the wall, right on to Castle Black, and there in the distance is Jon Snow's bloody body right where we left him after the mutiny. You hear Ghost howling in the distance. Jon is discovered by Davos, and they bring him inside. P- poor Ed, first of all. Let's just start <clears throat> off with uh, Dolores Ed and how he must be feeling in this moment seeing his friend get killed. Dolores Ed is a real ride or die. <laughs> Yo, he was going off about how they were just gonna take out everybody and like, what? What? What did he say? If you wanted, if you were planning to see tomorrow, you came to the wrong room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Ed literally became like probably my one of my favorite characters. I mean, he's always been one of my favorite side characters, but in this episode, you really bought into his friendship uh, with John, his conviction to want to avenge him. And it came across very, very well here. And so they have him up in the room, and Alistair Thorne and the other uh, Knights watched them. You need. All I kept wondering to myself was, okay, so they stabbed him, they walked away. Where'd they go? It oh, off man. to off to bed. It's late. <laughs> you know? And they just kind of left him here. Like we're done here, guys. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll clean it up tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here. <laughs> I just don't understand like what that whole part of it was. I mean, and it was weird too because. Uh, there's a scene later on where where uh, we're gonna get to it where Alistair Thorne is like defending his treason and it looks like it's daytime, oh but I'm assuming it's still nighttime when he's doing this. Well, well, technically, I think they they kill him late at night because in previous season, John's up working late at night by candlelight, yep. and they call him out to the yard where the uh, the mutiny happens, the coup, if you will. Mm. So I'm assuming Davos finds him early morning because there's no way he would have been able to see the body for, across the yard in the pitch black of night. Well, he is what he is woken up by guy ghost ghost ghosts. He's looking across the yard. You would assume that if we're to believe that this is pitch black, there's nothing but torchlight. Yeah, it's gonna be really hard to see John's body just by candle or firelight. So you can assume it's probably the dawn uh, or the the morning after, mm-hmm. super early. I mean, they probably didn't hide it because everybody's gonna find out anyway. So why even bother to hide it? I I guess you're right. And so then, uh, I, yeah, yeah, he's got a couple of supporters uh, that are along with Davos and Ed in the room, and I guess they're loyal to John to the end. They get Ghost in there. And then there's a knock at the door, and it's Melisandre. I don't know how she knew to you know go to the room, but like I said, we're not here to necessarily crap all over the show with some of these moments. But she knocks on the door, she comes in, and, man, Mel's having a bad day. Let's just put it that way. She's having a really, really bad day. I mean, what, just yesterday, uh, she finds out that Stannis is not the Lord of Light's chosen one. She pretty much sacrificed Shireen for nothing. And now Stannis has lost a battle. And now she thinks, oh, it's going to be Jon Snow. Jon Snow's my boy, right? Well, guess what? <coughs> it ain't Jono. She says, uh, I saw him in the flames fighting at Winterfell. And Davos is pretty much like, I, I don't know what your flames see, my lady, but he's gone. And that's it. Doesn't matter what the visions and the prophecies say. Jon Snow is dead. What we have been wondering for months on end, 
I mean, quite frankly, I knew he was dead. There's no way you're surviving getting stabbed, what was it, five or six times. I think it was, like, I think it was six. Exactly. So there, there's no way. So everybody going, oh, is he dead? Is he alive? I think what they really were wondering was, is he going to get resurrected because Melisandre is there? We found out in this episode that it's not going to be that simple. She's not in the right frame of mind for this right now. Most certainly not. I mean, if you go back to the, uh, I mean, we, we only know the Red God can bring people back. Because of, it was Thoros in, what was that, season two? Uh, season three. Season three. But the interesting thing about Thoros is that he wasn't able to do it right away. He had to kind of, he lost his faith in the Red God. Exactly. And his faith was kind of, uh, I guess he, he kind of became a, a born-again Red Priest after he the, the he said the words and it happened. Mm -hmm. He said the words because that's what he knew. Yeah. And in that moment, the uh, Lord answered his prayers. Beric Dondarrion gets brought back from the dead. Maybe the same thing will happen. We're going to come back to Melisandre in a bit. Let's take it back to Alistair <coughs> Thorne here. He has to defend his treason to the other brothers of the Night's Watch. Thorne claims that he never disobeyed an order and how loyalty is everything to him in the Night's Watch. John should have commanded him not to kill himself. I know, right? He should have been on his knees like, Alistair, no, please don't. <laughs> Alistair, no. Your Lord command commands it. <laughs> Yeah, it's, talk about hindsight's twenty twenty. So he tells the men uh, that which we already know, which is that John helped the wildlings, and he believes that it would have been the end for the Night's Watch, ultimately, and that's why they did what they did. I love that everybody just kind of went along with it. Everybody was, like, up in arms. This is awful. You're wrong. Then he, like, gives, like, the two-minute speech, and everybody's like, yeah, well, okay. Okay, yeah. No, you put it like that. Not to mention the shots of Ollie they give during that scene. Does that kid have, like, the most insane emo stare down you've ever seen they the, the light they just paint him in in that shot you're like oh man his face is so stabbable right now <sighs> he just looks like a little punk i want to smack the shit out of him i don't blame him for what he did though i mean he, you gotta remember he's like, he's like 10 he doesn't so? know any better uh, 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 i i i get i know no i'm sorry <laughs> you gotta you're, know you're 10 what's... years old your parents are raped and killed by the wildlings. Okay. Uh, the Night's Watch, at least from what they feel, they're... They, I mean, Sir Alistair has forgotten what the, the why the Night's Watch was even founded. They weren't founded to fight the wildlings. No. They were founded to fight the Great Knight that was to come. But they've been doing it for so long. They've lost that. sight of who they are. Exactly. So, I mean, as far as Ollie's concerned, their job is to fight the wildlings. The wildlings are the one who destroyed his family, and John is, in, is the one who's helping them. He's a kid. He's not able to see the big picture, just like Sir Alistair Thorne and the rest of the brothers. And I mean, that's how mistakes are made, pretty much in all forms of television. It's big picture people versus small picture. Oh, people. always. John's a big picture person. He realizes that uh, siding with the wildlings is what's going to ultimately get them ready to protect the realm from the true danger that is coming. But these small picture people can't get over whatever it is that's in their way and being able to see what ultimately is a bigger picture there's another character in Cersei Lannister who feels this way but we're going to get to her in a bit so next we have uh, Dolores Ed he wants to uh, you know like like we were saying take a small amount of the men down hopefully Alistair Thorne in the process and attack them Davos has the idea to elicit the help of the wildlings and Ed goes to get their help. Well, it's at least inferred that he is. That someone else I owes John his life. Their pretty, lives. It's got to be the Wildlings. I mean, there's no one else that they're talking about. And they, and they allude to it, and they, and they mention it uh, as well later on, confirming that that is indeed what Ed is going off to do here. So they pretty much leave it off with that. We don't see Ed for the rest of the episode after that. Next, we go over to Winterfell, where poor Ramsay, he's mourning for Miranda, and he shows 
genuine, true emotion that he has lost uh, the love of his life here until he tells the maester to feed her body to the dogs. She's good meat. <laughs> right? <clears throat> Burn her. Bury her. Doesn't matter. She's good meat. Feed it to the dogs. <laughs> so, Roose Bolton is uh, happy over the defeat of Stannis. Uh, he says that, you know, it's a shame that he doesn't know who get, did the killing blow. Otherwise, he would have rewarded the man, which I thought was a very funny line, considering it wasn't a man. Do you feel that with Roose, he seems a lot less menacing this season? Well, I mean, he's not... How do I say this? Roose is not the kind of person that has to be menacing to be menacing. Does that make sense? I just don't feel threatened by him anymore. His, his calm stoicness is what is so captivating about him. And that's what makes him menacing. He doesn't need to actually glare at you and make, I guess, you know, very dark threats. He tells it like it is. He tells Ramsey straight up in this scene that, oh, are you going to find her? He, and Ramsey says, I've got the hounds searching for them right now. Oh, very good. Because if not, you know, Walden might be carrying a boy. I was hoping, like, Ramsey was going to, like, just stab him in the face right there. You know he wants to. Oh, so badly. It's he? it's raging inside of him, for sure. So, great segue. We cut to Fionn and Sansa on the run from the <coughs> hounds. They cross the water. It's freezing cold. Theon embraces Sansa to keep her warm. And for some reason, she does not die right then in air of hypothermia. And then the hounds come around the corner. Theon ends up giving himself up. So that Sansa may escape, but she's so cold that she can't move, and they're found out anyway. And then Brienne and Pod show up to the rescue. So this right here was my favorite scene in the entire episode, by far. Awesome music, uh, first of all, that started off with the strings of them running away from the hounds. I really, really felt the sense of danger during the scene. I love that Theon is really starting to come out of his shell more and be just so willing to throw down his life for Sansa here to just give himself a little bit of redemption. And then, uh, you know, having Brienne and Podrick just come in and, you know, save the day, it was just, it was awesome. Yeah, thankfully, Ramsey left Theon with his balls, at least. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, he took he took the, uh, the pillar, but not the stones. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brienne uh, does away with the Bolton uh, men. And Podrick, yo. They, they, they may mention uh, that Brienne would be training Podrick in, like, season five to fight with a sword. And sure enough, he shows up. Podrick starts fighting. And I was taken aback by it at first because I had forgotten that one little detail. But upon thinking about it, I definitely remembered, oh, yeah, Podrick knows how to fight now a little bit. Not a lot. He's not a great fighter by any means. But he's learning from one of the probably the top five in Westeros. I mean, she did say last season that she was going to start drilling him every morning, and it seems to be paying off. I mean, he killed a guy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he didn't get he didn't get injured. He held his own, which is awesome. But I thought it was really cool in that scene when uh, Pod was also helping Sansa recite the oath. Oh yes, yes. But before we get to that, Fion got a kill as well, which was great. He did what was it? Did he stab him through the back? Yeah, he stabbed him right through the back. Oh, it was so cool. And it was awesome because it mirrored how. Pod saved Tyrion's life at the Blackwater by also stabbing somebody in the back as well, which I thought was a nice little callback there. So, yes, we get to the pledge. We get to her uh, saying the words, and she pledges her life and her services <clears throat> over to Sansa. 
Sansa stumbles along the words. She, I, I mean, it's got to be one of those things that she learns when she's like, what, five years old or something? Yeah, you watch people do it to your parents. Exactly. That too. And so she stumbles over the words. Pod's there to complete the words for her. It's cute. It's awesome. It's emotional. You see Brienne finally completing this arc for her that she's been honestly now at this point fighting for about what a year and a half as far as showtime goes it also comes full circle because this was similar circumstances under which she pledged to Catelyn exactly and in a way because Sansa is Catelyn's daughter it is yeah it's coming full circle for the Brienne character yeah a truly big fist pumping fuck yeah moment for everybody involved I loved it and to be honest with you I'm gonna ask you a prediction question right now do you foresee Pod and Sansa ever getting together no no, no, not at all. Just gonna throw it away just like that. I don't. I don't want to see something like that because I I hate when they like kind of like tack on love interest that doesn't really need to be there. Mm-hmm. I could see them becoming friends. I mean, becoming a servant of her house. I I don't think so because I think at this point Sansa's not gonna try and fall in love. She's all about straight murder game yeah. right now. Okay, that's fair. So speaking of straight murder game, Jamie arrives back in King's Landing on the Dorna ship. Cersei is alerted of the ship arriving, and she is giddy with joy. <laughs> I mean, she is like a little kid on Christmas. And then she realizes mm. that Jamie's coming back with a dead Marcella. And Lena Headey uh, does some really, really, really emotional acting uh, dramatic beats here. Yeah. And very limited scream time, too. <clears throat> I mean, she just conveys a ton of great emotion very subtly. And she's just, she continues to be a great MVP for this show and definitely one of the highlights overall. She thinks back on their mother dying. She confesses to Jamie about the prophecy that Maggie the Frog told her back in episode one of season five about how they will lose all three of her children ultimately. And Jamie does this amazing fuck the world speech. And fuck anyone that isn't us. And it should literally just become, I think at this point, their own house motto. Because that's pretty much what he's been saying to her since season one. That he would butcher the whole world until there's just him and her left in it. And the way that their lives are heading, that's pretty much what it looks like it's going to end up becoming at some point. Very much I'd agree. I mean, it's it's a cool divergence from the book that they took. And it's kind of cool to see them come together like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, I just have a feeling that something's going to happen that's going to drive them apart still. I just I don't see anything happening, ending happily ever after for Jamie and Cersei. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And I mean, I, I don't want to get into book territory so much, but um, we do know that there is something that does cause uh, the two of them to split at some point. What that will be, I'm not exactly sure, but we're probably going to get to it at some point. Like I said, I don't want to spoil... Um, certain elements that are already, you know, it's weird because this is the first season where we're truly beyond the books in many areas, but not all areas. And there are still elements that they are going to continue to adapt in in certain ways by using different characters, maybe combining plot lines together. Um, But, I mean, I'll, I'll reveal it right now. They're not staying together throughout this entire season, that's for sure. They're definitely going to go their separate ways. Cut to Septa Onella? Onella? I I never get this one right. Big butch, uh, shame, shame girl. She's reading scripture to Marjorie until the High Sparrow comes in. Marjorie wants to make sure Sir Loris is okay. The High Sparrow tries to get a confession out of Marjorie. 
and they pretty much play like a little good cop, bad cop routine here. I mean, this was kind of just, we haven't seen Marjorie since, you know, I think maybe episode seven last season. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, so we were just <clears throat> touching base at this point, really. They gotta give her something new. She's still in the books. Yeah, exactly. And so, my theory is that she is going to play the game, and she's gonna do like a pretend confession and she's going to act like she has com fully converted to the faith just to get out of there. Cause Marjorie, I think is definitely somebody that is very strong willed enough to be able to play that game and get out of there for it. But the only problem is like <clears throat> she's under, they have her there because she committed, she gave false testimony. Yep. <clears throat> and that's against Laura's for basically like, as we said in the last episode being gay. So for her to kind of get around that, she would have to kind of sell out her brother. Wouldn't she? I mean, I don't see that happening. That's yeah, but then how would she get around it? Well, she could always just simply confess. The trial can come later. That she lied and now, oh, actually what I said about Sir Loris is a lie. He's actually, yeah, he's banging dudes. Well, this is why there are nine episodes left in the season, right? Yeah. So, man, here we go. This is, uh, this is where things got insane. Dorn. <laughs> Duran reflects on Oberyn and pretty much... Oh, my God. That whole, like, build-up to him when he's walking up the stairs. I know. He's just like, like, oh, man. He's just, like, building up Oberyn. Like, he went on so many great adventures <laughs> and so slept with so many women and men and men. <laughs> and, it, it, yeah, because, honestly, to me, it's like he's talking about Oberyn. All I can think about during this scene is, can we just get Oberyn back? He was such a better well-written character mm -hmm. than anybody in this scene right now which is such a shame because in the books they are written a little bit better but in the show they're not and so a message is delivered to Doran about Marcella's uh death next thing you know the moment that happens and he has like a split second to react Ariel Hota is stabbed in the back by uh, uh one of the sand snakes I, I can't remember if it's Tyene or if it's uh uh, Nim, but in any event, though, it's uh, the cute one that showed her titties last season. So then Duran is stabbed in the chest by Ilaria, and all hell is breaking loose in this moment because now I'm saying to myself, this was like the first moment where I genuinely got shocked because a major death, which I fully did not expect because, spoiler alert, they're still alive in the books, it just like completely just made me jump out of my chair and go, James, whoa, whoa, what the fuck is going on? Whoa, I was bugging. It makes sense in terms of the show as far as they built up the character. I mean, he does, Prince Duran, he, he doesn't really do anything. He's just seen as weak. I mean, they never give you the idea that the whole, like, Dornish people are against him up until this moment where all the guards just literally watch him get murdered. Yeah, which was something that I had like, a I don't get time. that. Like, his his main, his captain of the guards, how would he not know? Mm -hmm. Like, if there's, like, some unrest in the city, we have no in inclination of that, and she literally just straight up murders the, the king of Dorne, mm -hmm. and everybody's like, okay, whatever, that, yep, yeah, we're good. It, it, it continues to be the one storyline in the entire show that just doesn't seem all that well thought out. I think well, I think it's because they just didn't want to do all the backstory and all the other characters that the book storyline incorporates because that's what really gives the depth to those characters and when you remove that, they don't really have a motivation that we as show watchers can buy and get behind like why they would be doing what they're doing. We know Alaria's motivation. We know that she wants to avenge Oberyn. We can get behind that it's simple. Yeah. We don't get why like what is he what does he have anything to do with? All they've done in the show is built him up to be a weak 
guy who sits in his chair in his gardens and does nothing. And it sucks because I think that it, <coughs> if I had not read the book, and if I did not know that in the books Duran actually is giving off the impression that he is weak and he's doing nothing, but what he's really been doing is he has really been conspiring and plotting against the Lannisters, his revenge, for many years, culminating in this awesome speech, which would have been amazing for television, would have given Alexander Siddig such a fantastic moment, and yet we didn't get it. It seemed like just a very, very big, we're going to subvert book readers' expectations, we're going to have a shocking death in the first episode to pull you in. Yeah. Oh, and uh, just P.S., fuck you too. I know, I'm, but it does, again, That none of that would make sense unless you have those characters that were in the book. Mm-hmm. It, without them, it, it's just pointless. So they wipe the slate clean pretty much. Basically. And so they pretty much just say, hey, you know what? We introduced these characters <clears throat> only, they, they literally were introduced just to be killed off. Essentially, yeah. I mean, if anything, it's just giving it's giving it to Ilaria to kind of do whatever she wants. Like I see them making noise, but mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really see this going much anywhere. It's her storyline at yeah. the end of the day. She is the main focal character of this plot line, and I, my only problem with this is that they need to take that simplistic motivation of revenge, and they have to make it three dimensional. They can't have it be just two dimensional. I want revenge, and that's it. I need there to be some sort of a dialogue scene or something to make her more of a human character. And I need more, even more motivation. I Like, I basically need her bullshit to be called out. Yeah, I mean, as far as, like, why she wants revenge, it, it doesn't make sense because under the, the circumstances that... Uh, By the laws died. of gods and men, <clears throat> Oberyn is rightfully dead because he wasn't just taken out back and shot behind the shed. Yeah. He... He can say... Volunteered. Exactly. And it's like, how does she not understand this? And it's know? even like he says, we don't kill little girls in Dorne. Oh, yeah. Let me just throw that out the window, too, while we're at it. it, it it's something that just, still from the first episode that they introduced, the Dornish plot line, it, it's just boggled my mind. The only thing that made it great last year was Jamie and Braun are just amazing together. And they are, their chemistry really, really carried me through season five. This season, I don't know where it's going, but... I could actually foresee... Maybe we don't check on Dorne for the rest of the season at this point. I think Dorne is pretty much done. Anything that's going to happen in Dorne is going to end up happening in King's Landing. Yeah. So then, here's the other crazy part, too. Now we cut to um, the the ship where Tristane is on in King's Landing. In in the harbor. It's it's docked. It's there. Yeah. And the Sand Snakes, the, the other two... One with the whip and the one with the spear, Obara, and once again, I can't remember the other one's name. They happen to be there, and Tristane, stupid. He's, he, he turns his back on one of them, thinking that because she's family, she won't hurt him. It, it's also crazy how easily they, are, they just kill their family, and with uh, Tristane's death... Oh man, that that death though was epic. Let me tell you, was not expecting that. Ah, uh, the Carl, Carl Tanner one from season four with the sword through the <laughs> head. It was like the same thing. You it, realize at that moment, like House Martell is done. That's it. There's yeah. no more House Martell. Oh yeah, yeah. Duran and his son. Like that's and I mean Ariel Tara, who was like their bodyguard, but like I know he's not. You know Martell. Yeah, they're done. And like uh, Elaria says, weak men like you will never rule Dorne again. Simple as that. Yeah. And she makes sure of that. Now, I know a lot of people are complaining about 
some of the little um, plot holes in this, like, oh, why does Ramsey's hounds run away during the fight with Brienne? Or why does uh, the sand, how, or how does the sand snakes get on the boat when at the end of season five, they were on that pier and they were walking away in dresses and now they're in completely different clothes. And when do they find time to get on this ship? I mean, to me, it's very, very simple. That they, you... they swam through the plot hole. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, it's easy to take a smaller uh, ship and just catch <coughs> up. Uh, you know, yeah. to me, it, it, I, I buy it. If it's a way to get these two sand snakes into King's Landing to create more havoc and mayhem, which can then lead to um, Alaria maybe invading King's Landing with Dornish men. I mean, that could be pretty cool, I suppose. You think it's just one of those moments where you have to suspend your disbelief? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a show of dragons and blood magic. Of course, there's a lot of suspension of disbelief here. But the thing that always bothers me about, you know, stuff like this is that I felt like in earlier seasons of the show... I didn't have to do that as much, and now I feel like more and more I have to lately. I wonder why they left him on the boat. Oh, just laying there? Yeah, like, wouldn't they bring him ashore? He's been on a boat for God knows how long. Yeah, the cleanup on that has to be terrible. Like, you you want to get him off? I'm sure he wants to get off. They get him in a chamber or something? Yeah. Like, I guess that's a little fishy, but whatever. Once again, oh, it's going to be like Jamie and Braun uh, trying to rescue Marcella in broad daylight. They, they just do everything in broad daylight, these these uh, characters from Dorne, pretty much. You know, they don't care about ramifications of their actions, and they just, they just go balls to the wall. They just do it. It's the land of eternal sun. So now, away from Dorne, because I could spend an entire day on this, we cut to Marine. Tyrion and Varys are walking through the city streets, dressed like common merchants, and <coughs> they want to understand what is going on, so they hit the street level, pretty much. Clearly, there is a lot of poverty. Tyrion offers uh, money for a child, and I'm sorry, for a mother and a child, and they see graffiti that says, kill the masters, and Misa is a master, is written on the wall. Yeah. They hear someone preaching of the Lord of Light and telling the poor people to take control of the city now that Daenerys is no longer there. And they discover that Danny's fleet has now been set ablaze. I thought that was silly because what's the motivation for setting the fleet ablaze? They want to get her out. Well, who wants to get her out? The Sons of the Harpy? Yeah. I think at this point, it's merely just create anarchy, create chaos. And just bring the whole civilization crumbling down. Yeah. I mean, does it make sense? Let me put it to you this way. From a book spoiler perspective, yes, it does make sense for something else that I think is going to happen later on in the show. I'm not going to reveal what I think that something is, but yeah. Yeah. I do think it's really funny, though, when Tyrion says the line, well, it looks like we won't be sailing to Westeros anytime soon. But Exactly. Pretty much telling everybody that's watching at home, oh, man, because every year, even, like, all the way back since, like, season two, all I've ever heard is, you think this year Danny's going to go to Westeros? You think this year Danny's going to go to Westeros? No. They're saving that probably for the very, very end of the show. Not, like, the last episode, but, like, the last season, I'd say. Yeah. So, with all that said, I do think that there will be a time uh, where she will get to Westeros. Will it be this season? I don't know. But, we then cut to Jorah and Dario on their little road show together as they are looking for Danny. They bond, they're talking about her, how they both love her. Bromance is forming. Mm-hmm. 
and they noticed the shape of the grass that, and the dirt that was left by the Dothraki horde, which leads to Jorah heading towards the center to find the ring that Danny left behind. I was yeah. really, really happy that they had that great visual to show us that clearly there were lots of hoof prints, lots of tracks left behind, and in the center you could see that there were none, which did prompt Jorah to move to the center to find the ring. Because I'll tell you, if we didn't have any of those tracks and Jorah just found the ring and amongst all of his grass, I'd be like, come on, don't bullshit yeah. me. Like, it's pretty obvious. Like, I mean, they're going to walk to this middle and he sees it. I mean, it's a, it's a shiny piece of metal, so I buy it. You know what I don't buy, though? <coughs> I don't buy that Dario has not yet found out that Jorah has grayscale. I mean, I he keeps it really covered up. I mean, it's definitely, it's spreading. Yeah, absolutely. It's you, really spreading. You yeah. see it starting to go up the arm more. And like I just said, they built Dario to be this very perceptive person. Uh, so Maybe he knows and he just like, <sighs> he just doesn't say anything. He's going to maybe say later like, I know. Oh, one other thing I forgot to touch upon before, but it kind of ties into this a little bit, is that uh, Tyrion and Varys earlier are alluding to how the Sons of the Harpy might be taking orders from someone. Yeah. Do you think it's Dario? I, uh... I mean, possibly. I mean, I'm not sure how he's giving orders now that he's away, unless, what is this, like, Fight Club, where they're just doing, like, Project Mayhem? Maybe. Uh, I guess we thought it was her uh, her king-to-be last season, but he got murdered during the the, uh, the fighting pit scene. So I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, <clears throat> I, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I don't think it's Dario, but you know what? I, I could be horribly wrong, and it is. Yeah, I mean, we'll have more to contemplate on that as the story moves forward this year. So Danny is now being led by the Dothraki. They're taunting her, talking about, you know, how all the things they want to do with her sexually. It they, is known. It is known. I'm glad that we got that phrase back in the show. It feels nice. They bring her before Carl Morrow, who is like a Carl Drogo uh, lookalike at a Halloween costume party yeah. that you go to. And he basically wants to sleep with her. Surprise, surprise. He he reminds her that she is the queen of nothing, the millionth of her name after she rattles off all of her titles to him. And he tell and and then um she tells him that she was Carl Drogo's wife. But doesn't she say <clears throat> when he makes fun of her with with all the titles that she even says like she's Khaleesi of the Great Grass, I thought. And he's like, Oh no, you're a liar. Then he she just like drops that and he's like, Oh. Oh yeah, I believe that. Okay. Well, think about it this way. A mysterious silver-haired lady uh, that's already a rarity to these people. She speaks Dothraki. She knows that uh, Carl Drogo, his father, was our call uh, Bobo, if I remember correctly, the name is. And, you know, uh, okay. Is it a little far-fetched? Yeah. Are the Dothraki also the smartest people? No, but I'm just saying, like, the other thing he doesn't believe, but that she believes. It's just, like, I, I thought he would, like, look for some sort of, like, proof or or something. I don't know. Well, in any event, Because he was just so... He just didn't want to believe her the person. I don't know. It's just, like, I didn't I didn't buy it. It buys her, basically, her from getting raped. And, and it uh, honors her non-nudity clause in her contract. Yes, absolutely. She still gets known. to keep that. It is known. And so she begins to uh, bargain to get an escort back to Marine. I like the offer. I'll repay you back a thousand horses. I was like, damn good deal. Does I'll Marine take even that have deal. A thousand horses. I do not know. I really don't know. But you know what? That'd sound like a sweet deal if I was a Dothraki uh, horse lord. Let me tell you. 
So then they tell her that they're going to be taking her to Vastofrak, to the Dash Kalin, which is where Carl's widows go after their call uh, dies. So we'll see where she's going to be heading after this. Arya now is begging in the streets, blind. You overhear uh, things that are really cool, like uh, there was like someone walking at one point, and they, they, you can actually make out the dialogue, and they say, did you hear what happened to the king's guard? Which basically implies that they're talking about the murder that she just committed, Yeah, which is pretty neat. She's approached by the waif, who wants to fight her with sticks. Okay, sure, I suppose. It's all a form of training. And then, um, you know, the wave kind of... Beats her ass. She, she takes pleasure in it. They're just it's just practice for Daredevil Season 3. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, Arya's going to get so good at this that she's going to want to go to Hell's Kitchen probably by the time mm-hmm. the season's over. Mm-hmm. She's easily defeated. She's told that she will fight her again tomorrow. And now we circle back around and we're in the last scene at Castle Black again. Crossbows on the room where they are keeping Jon Snow's body. Alice Thorne claims he will bring no harm to any brother of the Night's Watch who throws down their weapons. And he claims he will send Davos south free with Melisandre if he chooses. And then Davos <coughs> says, Some mutton. Need some mutton. What? I'm not much of a hunter. I need more. Can I have some mutton? <laughs> like the, uh, to me, that was like the best dialogue exchange. Well, other than the Dothraki, I think, in the whole top five uh, best things in the world. Like, that, that was seeming I think really he was just testing too. to see if, like, I, I'm, I think that was just a test to see if he was even going to get out of there alive when Sir Alistair Thorne's like, what, what, what? Well, that's the thing, yeah, <laughs> because you have to look at it from the perspective of when he asks that question and Alistair is taken aback and he says, wait, what? And then you could see Davos' like reaction on his face, and he tells him, you know, about how he's not much of a hunter, he needs the food. Davos asked that question because he wants to know how much how far ahead have they really thought through this plan. Yeah. Because if they haven't <clears throat> thought it through, then the plan really is the minute he opens the door, that they're gonna kill him. And yeah. quite frankly, knowing Alistair Thorne and the Night's Watch, and when you see all the crossbows oh, yeah, they had on that room. That doorway, yeah. Oh, they're ready for it. They're they're waiting for them to just get out and slaughter them all, which to me, it's a little pointless. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but they could easily all just take them on. If I was if I was the men in that room, I, I'd kind of just be like, yeah, you know what? I'd rather go south. You know, I'd rather get out of here. I mean, you'd like to hope that your brothers weren't going to betray you, but I guess if you're not with us, you're against us type idea. I suppose, right? I don't know. It, it's tough to say. It's a pickle, <laughs> needless to say. So they have to surrender by nightfall or else. Or else. Davos knows they have no intention of letting him go, so either they wait for Ed to come back, <laughs> and one of the Night's Watch <laughs> says, if that's our only option, God help us all, pretty much. But Davos suggests they could use Melisandre and her magic. Oh. What's a red woman going to do against 40 Night's Watchmen? Well, Davos says, you haven't seen her do the things that I've seen her do. Oh, he's seen her do some things. And after this episode, we saw her do some things as well. We cut to Melisandre and Jon Snow's Lord Commander quarters. I wish I didn't see these things. She looks at herself in the mirror, takes off her clothes, and everybody's got a boner. Then she takes off the necklace, and everyone's boner fades away. It is known. It is known. So, let's explain (laughs) this really quick to people that may not understand and are still left in a state of, what the hell was that? 
So she has in this necklace um, a, a thing of magic that's referred to as uh, glamour yeah. in the books. And if you uh, wouldn't, you know, if you would be so kind, why don't you explain to everybody what glamour can do? Glamour is a type of magic <clears throat> that she uses to disguise herself. It creates an illusion. It creates a false appearance. Mm-hmm. And this is very, very important because if you've been paying attention in the show, there are certain lines of dialogue throughout other past seasons where Melisandre has definitely made mention that she is a lot older than she appears. Yeah. For sure. She talks about how she was a slave once. She talks about how she's been fighting wars longer than Stannis. She talks about also, um, there's a there there's this scene in season four, I believe it is, where she's bathing, and it's the one time that you don't see her without <laughs> the necklace, without the glamour in this case, right? And so everybody was wondering, oh, that's another plot hole, right? She doesn't have the necklace on in that scene. Let's remember that the one person who sees her without the necklace on is Selyse, yeah. Stannis's uh, wife. And she is a true believer in the Lord of Light, right? So deep down, I believe that she probably knows that Melisandre is as old as she is. And when she saw her in her true form, if you go back and rewatch that scene... And you see the moment that Selyse walks in and she reacts to seeing her in the bathtub. You look at that on the surface level or even just the first time you watch it and you think to yourself, okay, a, conserv <coughs> a conservative woman, woman seeing a naked woman in the bathtub and she yeah. goes, oh, oh you know, yeah. But now that whole scene takes on another context because she pretty much just saw a 400-year-old naked woman in the bathtub. And then Melisandre asks her to hand her a potion which then she pours in the tub, and she basically exhales pleasurably, though as if like maybe she's reverting back to that disguised form again, and the scene carries on. And then she proceeds to tell her about tricks and illusions and disguise, yeah. and Selyse is asking, did you use a potion like that on Stannis? And she says, oh no, no, I didn't have to. And... I just find that scene now very, very interesting to go back and rewatch with this new uh, information that we're given. And I do know for a fact that around season four, the writers certainly were aware of where this development. Were going to go, yeah. Exactly. They definitely they had to know. For sure. So I don't think it's a mistake on their part. I definitely um, think that there is significance to showing. Um, this development in Melisandre's character. Because a lot of people were wondering, what's the point? I thought she was supposed to bring Jon back. What, what, why are they showing us this instead? And, oh, God, why are they showing us this instead? You know? Yeah. There is a reason behind it. And the reason is this, is that, like we said earlier, Melisandre is broken. She's at the lowest she's ever been in this entire show. She has lost her king, she has lost um, the visions and the flames. She's lost pretty much everything. She doesn't know the truth anymore. She is living a lie. And her own appearance is a lie. Did you also notice in that scene that for the first time she actually seemed cold. She was trying to warm her hands. 
Because we've mm-hmm. seen in other seasons that she didn't even have to wear a jacket at the wall because the, the Lord of Light keeps her warm. Yeah. And it, feel, it seems like the fires have left her. The, the fire of the, of the God of Light is, is gone from her right now. Yeah, so you were saying earlier about how this mirrors, uh, how Thoros of Mir felt when he told the story about how he resurrected Barak Dondarrion. Yeah. How he had pretty much lost all faith, he was broken, but what made him want to say the words was that it was his, it was his friend. Yeah. You know, people have these moments in life where they're maybe not religious, but they know the words. And in a moment, maybe they ask God for help, even if they don't necessarily believe in God. You do what you know. Yeah, exactly. So, the similar circumstance here. I don't know how it's all going to go down. I do suspect that Melisandre still does have a part to play. And I fully do believe it will involve uh, possibly sacrificing her own life to bring John back. I have a feeling that that's where this is heading at this point. Very well could be. What uh, makes her want to do it, though, is another question. Yeah, entirely. like, what's the motivation there unless she, like, she's absolutely convinced that he's a Zorahai? Yeah, but ha- you got Yeah, that's, that's what that's, we're not convinced of. And, I mean, I mean, Thoros didn't have to sacrifice himself, so... Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, because the... the what is needed to resurrect someone, it's still kind of murky. We don't really know what it needs aside from you say the words and you're a red priest and you have some sort of gift and boom, you're alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that something's taken away from you. Yep. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, she's. I guess she's got to find She's got to find the Lord of Light again. Yep, absolutely. So that pretty much does it here for episode one called The Red Woman of season six of Game of Thrones. We're going to be back next week with the episode titled Home. And for a while, it was considered Homeward Bound, which um, was a title that a lot of people were floating around on the internet. And all I kept thinking about was uh, season two of The Leftovers as I was listening to that. So it, it it's officially called Home. And we're going to be catching up with some <coughs> other characters that we did not see in this episode. So hopefully, um, we're going to catch up with Sam. Yeah, Sam Slayer. Bran. We're going to see him after a whole season of him being off. Um, He's going to be ridiculous now. I agree. I agree. It should be quite a sight to behold for sure. And the showrunners have said that the theme for this season um, is coming home. And that's why one of the episodes has that title. It's actually going to be written by uh, David Hill, who actually wrote his first episode last year on the show, which was the episode Sons of the Harpy, episode four of season five. So Dave Hill will be writing this episode. Jeremy Padeswa will be back in the director's chair again. We're going to leave it off with the uh, preview for episode two of season six. Get out of my way. King's orders, your grace. You don't know which way she went. I spent three days looking for her. She disappeared. We know where she's going. Castle Black isn't defended on the southern side. We could storm the castle. You would spill blood in this holy place. Well, the gods spill more blood than the rest of us combined. Before we go, James, do you have any final thoughts on the Red Woman? I wish I didn't see that. <laughs> right? For the night is dark and full it was of terrors. That was such an eerie scene. It was so creepy. I just wasn't expecting it. I remember watching it with you and you're like, oh, oh, the glamour, glamour, <laughs> glamour, James, glamour. It, it is I, known. I didn't see it in the mirror. Then I'm like, oh, shit, what's what's in the mirror? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I agree. I, you know, I did freak out because... 
this is something that has never been fully confirmed in the books, but has been theorized about for a long time. It made me think of the movie The Witch, uh, when she grabs the, the boy after she comes out of her shed in the woods, mm-hmm. and how she looks beautiful, then you see, like, the old hands grab him. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah. For anyone that's not seen The Witch, by the way, that was a horror film that was released earlier this year, and I fully, fully recommend you check that film out. That film is awesome. So, anyway, got a plug in there for The Witch. This has been the Next Best Film Podcast. Thanks once again, James, for being on. We'll be back again next week. Take care. Are you not entertained? How about you? Are you not entertained? This is a nice future. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.